to the Digiday Podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I am the Senior Media Editor at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, Media Editor at Digiday. Kaylee, today we are kicking off the first episode in a new limited series. Uh, we did the Editor-in-Chief series last year, and we've done two series focused on creators. Now we are doing a series focused on the Chief Revenue Officer role at media companies. And so we have Mia Libby from the Daily Beast to kick off the series. Um, but before we you know, talk about your conversation with Mia, Kelly, I mean, we've started, I think we started talking about this series in like April because it felt like there were some changes going on. Like I think at that time, Vox Media had brought in the purview of Ryan Pauly, who's their chief revenue officer. And we were thinking a lot about like the changing dynamics of the revenue organizations at these media companies. It feels like since then, the importance of the CRO position has only grown with uh, the economic downturn. Yeah. I mean, if you really think about it, the role of the CRO, I think, has changed quite a bit since a lot of companies have started thinking more in depth about their diversification strategies for revenue. Um, I mean, if you think back to even when Facebook changed its algorithm in 2016, I think diversification has been top of mind for a lot of execs in publishing, especially for CROs. And in the conversation with Mia today, um, she really talked about how her role has changed from you know being an ad sales head to having to really be involved in a lot of different areas of the company at the Daily Beast. And while that's, you know, her example, I think it stands to reason that a lot of media companies have needed to shift the role of CRO to think more broadly about where and how publications can make money. And in the pandemic, we saw a lot of immediate shifts needed to happen in Q2, Q3, 2020. And that definitely put a lot of pressures on, you know, CROs. Um, and again, this year, I think a lot of changes are needing to happen again to adjust to uncertain terrain when it comes to the ad industry yet again. So you're right. I think the CRO role looks different than it did a few years ago and is going to change probably even more in the next few months. Yeah. And I think we have a like a great lineup of guests that are going to be part of this series that'll give a good cross section of what the revenue organizations at these media companies looks like at the moment and how these CROs are managing the business at the moment. You know, we have Mia this week, and then Ryan Polly from Vox Media will be the next episode. After that, it'll be Joy Robbins from the Washington Post, and then we'll cap the series with Edgar Hernandez from BuzzFeed. And so, Kaylee, in your conversation with Mia, what did she share about how she is kind of steering the company's revenue organization through the current economic conditions? Yeah. So one of the things that we had discussed earlier this year um, with what the Daily Beast is doing to really change its strategies from previous years is rethinking the 
relationship between the ad business and the subscriptions business and using their readers as the kind of conduit between the two of them. So she talks a lot about how her job now really focuses on the user journey and how they're filling the pipeline with both potential subscribers, but then also people that they can monetize more thoroughly if they aren't a subscriber yet with first-party data collection and advertising. And really, she's looking to kind of create more efficiencies in the businesses that they have at the Daily Beast and really focusing on creating a a through line of bringing someone in who's maybe just visited the site for the first time and monetizing them, increasing their ARPU and increasing their lifetime value as efficiently as they can with a variety of different products, which they call known products. So we talk a lot about how that strategy has come into play earlier this year and how it's being executed on at the midway point through 2022 and how she plans on continuing that trajectory in the back half of the year and in 2023, which we discuss as well, is likely still going to be a period of recession um, in you know, the media industry, it's not going to stop after a couple months. Um, so it's something that she needs to be thinking about. And this is their strategy for trying to get the Daily Beast in a, in a strong position through what could be a period of prolonged economic downturn. Right. Yeah. No, it sounds like a really insightful conversation. So I'm excited to hear it. Thanks, Kayla. Thanks, Tim. Mia, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you? Thanks for having me, Kaylee. I'm great. How are you? I'm great. Um, So this episode is part of our CRO series, which is looking at how the role of the CRO in media has changed or diversified as media companies have diversified over the past couple of years. And I think it's a very interesting time to have this series take place because there is a lot going on in 2022, especially at this kind of half year point that I'm really curious to see how, you know, you've been dealing with some of these things, especially after the pandemic, you know, through a lot of media companies uh, through a loop as well. Um, this series is really meant to kind of talk about the role of the CRO and and get into how you've been, you know, leading through it um, the past couple of years. So thank you for for participating. My first question is really kind of, you know, given the fact that you do have this really unique perspective into the health of a media company and, and the struggles that a business might be experiencing, I'm curious, you know, how you feel like the role of the CRO has changed over the past couple years as um, new revenue streams have been developed and advertising has changed in regards to just Mm -hmm. the ad industry, you know, having to change as well. Um, You know, if you had to kind of maybe write yourself a job description at this point in time, do you feel like it's different than maybe what it would have said a couple years ago? Yes, definitely. And you, you already hit the nail on the head, Kaylee, that it's To me, the role has changed because of this proliferation of diversified revenue streams. You know, 10 years ago, even less in many instances, for example, when I got to the Beast, advertising was the primary, if only, source of revenue. And Mm -hmm. we have diversified that to a great extent across multiple different revenue streams. And I think CROs now who are running businesses that have multiple revenue streams as part of their overall pie have to be thinking about the user much more. 
and the user experience in a way that I don't think that they did before. You know, frankly, with advertising, you're much more focused on hitting your revenue goals. Um, and in some instances, I think people are willing to sacrifice that user experience to hit that. You put another ad on the page, that's more revenue. But now, in my role, I really have to focus on what impact that extra ad is going to have on the page. Is it going to mean that people aren't going to scroll more? Is it going to mean that people don't like coming to the site because we have too many ads? One of the things that we really have to think about because we have streams of consumer revenue is ensuring that the user experience is really strong and that we're constantly building engagement and loyalty. And that has become such a larger part of my role since we started diversifying the revenue streams. And I imagine it's something that more and more CROs are thinking about as well. For sure. Yeah. So, you know, at this point, um, to your point also, I think CROs have largely been seen as kind of like ad sale chiefs in the past. Um, What, I mean, like how broad does your role now reach? Like which teams are you talking to on a daily basis? Where do you have the kind of uh, you know, conversations about user experience, um, you know, beyond maybe like a sales meeting that you would typically yes. be seen in? Yeah, I think that's another massive change to the role, Kaylee, because a really important part of my job is internal partnership. So ensuring that I am working with our product team to create things that are going to benefit all businesses or the consumer revenue business as much as the advertising business. And so having creativity when it comes to those internal partnerships and how we can do something that is going to, we can make a change, we could build a product, we can launch a product that's going to impact all lines of revenue or maybe just the consumer rev- the consumer revenue lines of business, which is not something that as a head of ad sales before I would have necessarily done or cared about. Um, also with editorial, the Daily Beast maintains a very, very strict line between editorial and revenue, but that doesn't mean we can't have conversations about ways that I may be able to to help them fund some things that they want to do via an advertising partnership um, or even via a membership opportunity or a commerce opportunity. And so I find internal partnerships to be even more important than they ever have been before. I work very closely with edit. I work very closely with product to make sure that we're satisfying that strong user experience at all times. And of engagement. Yeah. And in, in looking at maybe your day-to-day, do you find that those internal meetings are what takes up the majority of your time? Or, you know, are you in a lot of conversations with external partners still? Like, what's the kind of breakdown between those meetings that you might be sitting in on? Yeah, I would say that there is a large a larger portion of my day is spent figuring out what needs to be done to arm the teams, each line of revenue with what they need. That's what I have always seen my job as. 
breaking down the barriers, making it easy for each one of the uh, people beneath me who run revenue streams or teams to be able to do their job well. So I'm lucky enough to have those teams and have incredibly capable people running them. So I view my job as a way to solve any problems that they're having, whether that's through brainstorming or working closely with the other divisions of the Daily Beast to get them what they need. And that's across sales, that's across subscription and consumer revenue and commerce. So I I would say it's a strong 50-50 right now, whereas Mm -hmm. there there was a time where the lion's share of my job was just going out on sales calls. Right now, uh, there is much more of a fielding of concerns or needs that I can then go and troubleshoot or solve for them. I guess to that end, it would be good to maybe set the stage with the different revenue streams that the Daily Beast currently yes. has. Um, I know in the past, we spoke earlier this year about subscriptions, and I definitely want to get into that um, you know, strategy more in this episode. But I think at that point, um, you had mentioned that subscriptions were a approximately 20% of total revenue um, for the for the business. But I'm curious, you know, what that kind of breakdown looks like, um, you know, at the half half year point in 2022. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it is roughly around the same percentage wise. But we started to think about the business much more holistically, because many of these businesses actually intertwine in various ways. And we did a reorg a couple of years ago to unsilo the business. So instead of having subscription over here, advertising over here, we wanted everyone to have the opportunity to touch everything. One, that gives everyone incredible career growth opportunities. And two, that allows everyone to be rowing in the same direction. So you don't have people saying, oh, you're favoring this business over this business. We want everyone to be in a position to make the best decision for the Daily Beast, not just their business. So I say all of that to sort of tee up the way we're looking at the overall business now. And it's just a much more user-centric business. So thinking about our users, of course, I've mentioned multiple times at this point that user experience is incredibly important to us. but We think now about the best way to monetize each user. And that is completely dependent upon the depth of their engagement with the Daily Beast. So we know that there are people who are incredibly loyal to us, who visit us directly to the homepage. Those are people that we are earmarking for subscription, and we think they have a high likelihood to subscribe. Then there are people who have never been on the Daily Beast before. Those are people that we know are not necessarily going to sign up for subscription. So our goal is to try to get them to come back again, try to get them to become more and more familiar with the Daily Beast so that we can actually turn them into one of those loyal users one day. And then there's the great middle there, right? That's somewhere in between those two ends of the spectrum. And in the middle, we have myriad opportunities to monetize those people. And if we can start driving them into what we're calling known user products, those that's newsletters, 
our apps, our uh, push notifications on site, if we can get them to register without paying, those users then become much more valuable to us than they were before because our data shows that they come back more often. Therefore, we're able to monetize them more regularly, even if we don't get them to subscribe in that moment or on their first page view. They're still more valuable to us if we can get more information from them or get them to join one of these known user products. That also benefits the advertising side of the business because we start to collect more first-party data on them. And with cookie deprecation, that is becoming more and more important to us to gather our own data on these users so that we can then create segments for our advertising partners. So you see how all of these businesses then end up really tying into one another. And that's why instead of thinking about what do we have to do to get our OMP business up? Or what do we have to do to get our subscription up? We're thinking about the user and how to get each user, whatever point they're at in their daily beast journey, to spend more time with us and to deepen their engagement with us so that ultimately we get to what is the holy grail of average revenue per user, subscription. Got it. Got it. And I have a bunch of questions to follow up on that because that is the strategy that we discussed at uh, the beginning of this year. And I'm curious to get an update on that. And I just wanted to add in. So, I mean, you have the advertising, you have the subscription, you have this trail of monetization that you're trying to get throughout um, adding value to the user along that journey. Um, is commerce something that you're weighing at all in the business? Uh, do you have other, you know, more custom side of advertising? Like, are there other um, revenue streams outside of that user journey that you're also in charge of right now? Yes. Um, so on the advertising side of the business, we do custom content frequently. Um, that depends, of course, on the goals of any advertiser that we're working with. Um, on the commerce side, we, we do have a commerce business, which is a mix of um, our own editorial, our own commerce focused editorial team that writes product reviews and recommendations. Uh, and then there are some vendor partnerships under there that fall under you know, the, the commerce umbrella. Um, and then we also have a robust syndication business. So those don't necessarily ladder into the strategy that I was just mentioning per se, although there are for sure opportunities to. So for example, we have used segments for which we gather first party data. We have used promotion opportunities within those segments to push out our custom content to make sure that that custom content is only going to the people for whom it is the most relevant or will intrigue the most. Um, We also have the opportunity to do that with our commerce business, push out content to people who haven't seen it before or who we know have been in the market for beauty products before or fitness equipment before. And so, again, I think those are good examples of how we weave those businesses together. 
And then syndication, these are people who are coming in from other platforms, people who are coming in from Yahoo, people are coming who are coming in from Smart News, people who are coming in from MSN. Those are people that are loyal to those platforms. They are not loyal to the Daily Beast. So you can see how we have the opportunity there to try and introduce them to the Beast, make sure they like it, get them to like it, maybe sign up for a newsletter based on what article they came in on, if we have a newsletter that's relevant there. So though they don't necessarily sit on the journey that I spoke about, they all touch each other. Because again, it's just about every, thinking about every single user and the best way for us to monetize them across each one of their, our businesses. So for, um, and just to make sure like the kind of maybe the different weights of the businesses are, um, I have it, the understanding correctly. So subscriptions is approximately 20% of revenue. Advertising is a large portion. I, ma- I imagine the, the line share, but I'm curious where like the syndication, the commerce, you know, the custom, like where those kind of fall in line as well um, when you're weighing the, the contributions of all of those. Yeah. So advertising ends up being about 55% of the pie, 20% subscription, uh, 15% um, commerce, and then the remainder syndication. So getting back into that known reader, the people that you are identifying in that kind of middle ground area. So these are people who've been to the Daily Beast before, they're familiar, maybe they're not your most loyal uh, cohort, but what are you hoping to get them to tell themselves about you? Like what's the qualifications of being a known reader, I guess? Like what information do you need from them to classify them in that grouping? The most important thing is their email address. So there are a couple of ways we can get that. We can get that by showing them a registration wall. So saying, you want to read this article, you just have to give us your email address. You don't have to sign up. You don't have to give us a credit card, just your email address. That's one way we can do it. Um, And then we sort of can get them into a flow, an email flow where we're trying to introduce them to the Daily Beast and the various things we think they might like based on the article that they came in on. Newsletters is the other way. Depending upon what they come in on, we may have a corresponding newsletter. So if they come in on a politics story, we can serve them the opportunity to get our politics newsletter. If they come in on a media story, we can give them the opportunity to sign up for our media newsletter provider. If they come in on a royal story, we can give them the opportunity to sign up for the royalist, our royals newsletter. And so we're only going to show them the newsletters that we think are really relevant based on their user behavior, i.e. whatever they came in on. Um, but we, when we do that, we see a good conversion rate. We see that people are interested in reading more of that content. And that is an excellent way for us to stay in touch with them and then build a relationship with them. And so, like I said, deepen that engagement. For app. And for our push notifications, that's sort of a different beast. And we'll usually end up serving that to people who are a little bit more loyal. Um, But it is also, they do then become known users. We have the opportunity to um, reach out to them on a regular basis uh, because we are in their pocket or we have the opportunity to send them breaking news alerts via push notifications. 
So those are in the stack as well. But you know, if you want a simple answer, it's email. Got it. And so I think, you know, one of the stories I've been kind of working on um, the past few days, maybe a week now, is um, based off of some recent like piano data that they put out in their subscription benchmark report this year. And within that, there's that um, registered user being a good category or having a higher conversion rate to a paid subscriber. Like that's the kind of value. I think the stat was like 10% of registered users become paid subscribers at some point, um, maybe like on average, like 3% convert in the first year or something Mm -hmm. along those lines. Um, Yes. So I'm curious, like when you're looking at these different known readers in your ecosystem, and especially when you have the email as being a a good uh, communication method to perhaps push, you know, paywalled content or advertise your membership, um, you know, is that conversion to the paid subscriber your kind of ultimate goal here? Is that the like the biggest kind of monetization um, opportunity that you're seeing? And also, are these known readers, good converters to that? Like, have you seen that already happen? Absolutely. Um, They are, yes. And when I say that we're thinking, always thinking about the best way to monetize a user, the, we're always thinking about the ARPU, the average revenue per user and the lifetime value of that user. And that's all the way from a totally unknown person that's worth pennies to us to a subscriber that's worth far more than that. It's worth the price of a subscription. So that is the most high value product we have. So yes, ideally, that would be the best product to drive them into. But that is not going to happen for 100% of our readers. So there are other options along the way that are far more valuable than the pennies that we get for one person who comes one time and reads one story. So by moving them along, by becoming a newsletter subscriber, by becoming a registered user, not only do we see a much higher conversion rate to subscription ultimately, but we are monetizing them much better than we were before because they are coming back more consistently. So that is, we know that we have a much better shot of converting someone once they've signed up for one of these products. And so that is, of course, also why we want to do that. I think of it as, to use it, you know, to, to bring this all back to advertising, I think of it as our pipeline. You know, it's like you get a proposal, you get an RFP, you send the proposal to the agency, you have conversations, each one of these deals moves along the pipeline. And I think of that similarly for these users. We have to take the baby steps on a lot of these to get to the ultimate IO or sale, but those steps along the way have a lot of value in deepening our relationship with that user. Um, And so I think of it as our pipeline or our funnel, if you will, into that really high value product of subscription. Absolutely. And so like when you're 
Comparing an unknown user to a known user, you mentioned like ARPU is one thing that you look at. Um, how much does the ARPU increase when you're looking at something from like an advertising perspective? Um, you mentioned pennies for someone who's come to your site once. You know, what's the approximate kind of increase in ARPU that you're looking at for a known reader? Maybe that depends on which product, like known product they've come in through, but I, I am curious like what you're kind of estimating that increase to be. It can, it depends on the product, but it can be 200%. I mean, it's quite a bit more valuable. Got it, got it. And then for conversion rates going from reader to subscriber, yes. what's the kind of increase there that you're seeing? From a known user to a subscriber, we see the increase. We see an enormous increase. I don't want to misquote. I don't have the number off the top of my head, but like that piano data showed, we see an enormous increase Increase because it's just a qualified audience. It's someone who has raised their hand. They're not ready to pay yet, but they're willing to give you the breadcrumbs to help lead you there. Absolutely. So in the first what has it been? Maybe five, six months of testing this strategy. Like, do you feel like it's something that's putting the Daily Beast in a maybe stronger position looking at? And I know the speculation of like recession talk isn't a fun conversation to have, but in that scope of there could be an economic downturn coming up, do you feel like this model is something that's benefiting your business strategy, like leading into that time? Or how are you thinking about, um, you know, what could be a, a potential economic downturn for media companies after the one that happened, you know, just two years ago? I feel that by revising our strategy to focus on the conversion to known user versus just the conversion to membership, I feel we have begun to lay the groundwork to truly build this business for the long term. We launched subscription in June of 2018, and our goal for the first three years was get as many subs as possible. We had to prove out the business. We had to know that we could see success here and we could get to a critical mass, and we did. But we didn't spend the time building the pipeline, building that funnel into subscription. And that's what we've pivoted to now. We have not pivoted away from conversion to subscription. Of course, that is still our ultimate goal. But we are willing to accept that not every person who visits the site is willing to pay us $35 a year right now. We are willing to accept that. And we know that we need to do the work. And so I feel that for the first time, we have started to think about how to start on day one with people who are visiting the site and get them to ultimately become our subscribers. And so we're hard at work on that. That will bear out over the next couple of months, the next couple of quarters, and frankly, the next couple of years. But our thesis is that, and the data backs it up, if a user is engaged and converts to one of these known user products, the likelihood that they subscribe is high. 
or higher than it was. So now we're focusing on how to get more people to register or give us their email address because we know that we now have a machine that can move them down this funnel. So what are the things that we need to do to really deepen that engagement? And to me, that's ultimately building a machine and a funnel for the future because we are working on this, our future subscribers now. And that gives me great hope for what our future could look like, especially through a recession, because like I said, even if people aren't willing to fork over the money for a subscription, it costs them nothing to sign up for a newsletter. It costs them nothing to give us their email address. We still monetize them better. So we are still getting more value out of them while we sort of wait for this recession to turn over or we wait for, you know, what will probably be a crazy news cycle in the next year, year and a half, which has both which boded well for us in the past. Yeah, no, that absolutely makes sense. And I think, um, you know, when you had mentioned that email is definitely like one of the the key pieces of information you collect from known readers, I'm curious, like looking at the first party data side of things, what other information are you able to get from people who are registered? Are you looking mostly at like contextual information about what they're reading? Are you looking at behavioral at all? Or are you even saying like, hey, build your profile. Tell me what your job is. Tell me what your, you know, state is that you live in. Like what's the other kind of first party information that you can collect or have been collecting since starting out this strategy? Yeah, we have been focusing on the contextual data and the behavioral data, meaning what are they reading and what are they doing when they're on the site? How many pages are they consuming? Are they consuming cheats from our cheat sheet? Are they consuming articles? Um, Are they going from entertainment to politics to news, or are they sticking with one specific vertical? We're looking at all of that information. We have not gotten to the step where we've started to build out profiles, um, but we feel we're gathering enough data at this point that's really relevant for our advertising partners around endemic segments. So our entertainment advertisers are wanting to use segments based on what people are reading. and they, it is really valuable for us to understand the behavioral data to help inform how we optimize the user experience and how we get the opportunity to get people into research and get them to view more when they're on the site. So one is really for advertisers and one is for our own user journey optimization. For sure. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And so since I kind of touched on this economic downturn, recession, you know, whatever we're kind of calling it right now in mid-July, I'm curious if you've noticed, if you've started seeing any kind of impacts to advertising already. Um, I think some of the publishers I've spoken with have noticed, you know, categorical dips uh, or budget changes. Um, Other categories like travel for instance, have been really high performing. Um, But I'm curious, you know, what you're starting to note uh, as this recession maybe starts to like take hold. Yes. Become real. Yeah. Um, You know, it's still something to me, it still is something that um, 
people are anticipating and they want to be prepared. And so I think the impact that I'm really seeing, I don't have advertisers telling me we're not running because of a recession, but I do see people holding onto their money for longer, committing to, um, committing to budgets piecemeal. So waiting for incremental or saying, we'll do this for now and then we'll commit to Q4 later, whereas normally they would have done a multiple quarter buy. Um, so I see, I see advertisers being a little bit more cautious. I also see some of our um, performance-based business. So that's a lot of our affiliate partners and direct-to-consumer brands. I see them being a little bit more conscious of how much they're investing um, and, and when. So I would say that we are starting to see signs of people or advertisers being more conservative, but I have not yet experienced the, we are no longer running because we're in a recession. Got it. Got it. And when you say advertisers are holding on to their money, is it more so like you said, not committing to, you know, a multi-quarter buy, or is it more like payment term or like payment uh, lengths extending? It's the former. So not wanting to commit to multi-quarter deals with the same level of frequency as they have in the past. Um, being more reticent to commit to upfront deals um, or large budgets that might require um, multiple stakeholders. I just see a bit more of a slow play of the releasing of budgets on the advertising side. Are there any categories that are starting to that you're starting to see kind of do this more than others? I wouldn't say so. I don't think there's anything that I can specifically point to. Entertainment is a huge category for us and a growing one at that. And we have not seen a slowdown there. And that takes a lot of time and a lot of our attention. And we, like I said, we have not seen a slowdown there um, to report there. I don't have a category that I can necessarily point to that is doing something worth talking about. Got it. Got it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that I mean, that makes sense. I feel like so far, the the only ones I've heard have been crypto pulling back, which mm-hmm. I don't think is a surprise to anyone. Um, yes. But then travel being really strong as well, um, still maintaining that. So interesting. Um, which is so interesting because that's usually the first thing in a right. in a um, in a recession. Right, and I think that takes me to my next question. You know, comparing. 2022 to 2020, um, I know like so much changed once the pandemic started. And I think the entry into an economic recession happened a lot faster than this one is happening. But I am curious if to some degree or to what extent maybe like the 2020 playbook that you had to kind of put together perhaps really quickly is being applied to 2022. Do you even see them as comparable years to, you know, some degree when it comes to this like economic macro concern? In 2020 Q2, obviously it was not a great quarter for us, but it felt like we really grasped what our readers needed from us and we were able to deliver there. 
Now, I think we're dealing with a lot of unknowns surrounding the economy and in politics. And we're just trying to, again, make sure that our user experience is really strong, make sure that we have a product people want to continue to come back to, and make sure that we are serving our advertising partners in an uncertain time. So I would say that these two don't necessarily line up from a business perspective, except that it just takes ingenuity to survive these. You cannot keep doing the same thing over and over again. And if we were to try to just rip out our Q2 2020 playbook, it wouldn't work right now. So we need to be constantly reading the market. We need to be constantly understanding what users want from us and then responding. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I feel like there is some feeling of repetition from a standpoint of, I don't know what this might do to advertising, but you're right. It has to be a completely different approach to what the response was in 2020. One of the aspects I think that I'm curious about is the sales teams, like maybe structure organization in dealing with what is maybe going to be an economic downturn and having to be responsive, like have sales teams needed to be restructured at all? Or have you learned anything about like maybe responses or uh, incentives are given to advertisers uh, by sellers? Like, are there anything, has anything been done in that kind of organizational structure to be able to react quickly in times of uncertainty? Yes. So I feel very good about our structure. And I'm not looking to change or tweak that because of difficulty in the market. I feel really good about who we have on the team and the way they're organized and the categories that they call on. Where we do need to change is, and where we do in moments like this, is having more conversations and listening. And it's not listening for when is the next RFP and are your budgets going to be down? But listening to what their challenges are, listening to what they're not getting in the market and thinking about what we can do to help fill those holes or solve some of those challenges. So to me, it's not about having a different sales team out there or restructuring them, but it's about bringing our advertising partners the opportunities that are going to evolve with their businesses. So it's possible that a business has completely different objectives than they would have this time last year based on a potential or maybe current economic downturn. It is our role to offer them new opportunities that are going to help deliver on that new objective. And that's really where the marketing team comes in, where the creative strategy team comes in, And where the sales team comes in to sit down and listen to their clients and then help deliver that information, deliver that information back to the marketing team to put the best possible idea in front of them. And I think that's another example of how in these moments of uncertainty, you cannot continue to do the same things you've always done. You must bring new opportunities to market. You must listen and you must respond. 
Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you so much, Mia, for taking the time. And it's great to hear about your perspective of this moment of time and this kind of economic uncertainty and how you're approaching it right now. I think it's it's great to, to learn about. So thank you for, for being on. Yeah, thank you for having me, Kaylee. And thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode.